Good morning. If there's any kiddos left and you missed it, uh, children, we, uh, we have children's worship for our kiddos ages 2 through the 4th grade through this door and down the hall. Well, it's good to be here. I wasn't here last week because I was out at Camp Yamhill. We had um, our first ever Manifest, which is a, a youth conference for high school students, and it went really well. I'm excited to share more about that. Uh, but it's good to see you. Uh, I, I do see a lot of visitors. It's good to have George Fox students back in Newburgh. Um, and for all of those, oh yeah. <laughs> the coffee lines may be longer, but it's worth it. And uh, if you're visiting with us, uh, we are thankful that you're here. And uh, I'm not usually the guy up here giving the lesson. Um, I'm the youth minister here if you're new here, but I'm happy to be able to share every, every now and then. And uh, Chris actually said uh, that I kind of got free reign this time around. Normally we try to do series, and we do have a really excellent one coming up here in a couple weeks, but we decided to take a little break at the beginning of September and just do some standalone sermons. And so, um, man, when you get that opportunity, your mind kind of gets flooded with all these ideas. But um, over the past couple of weeks, I've just been thinking a lot about the book of Jonah. And as I dove in, it made me realize uh, kind of this question, I guess you could say, how familiar are we really with the story of Jonah? So I'm going to have a couple moments for audience participation, okay? Feel free to just shout it out. But when you think of uh, the book of Jonah, what comes to mind? Just shout it out. What comes to mind? The whale, right? I mean, is that probably number one? I think we, if we did a poll, probably the whale or the big fish, if we want to be a little more biblically accurate. That's okay. That's okay. Fasting cows, that's very niche, but yeah, that is in there. Yes. So, when we think of Jonah, I think there's really a couple things that come to mind. First of all, it's usually wrapped around in Sunday school. Like, maybe you've read it a couple times in your adulthood or whatever, but I'm thinking about VeggieTales. I'm thinking about a big fish. And I mean, if you, were, if you literally just do a Google search of like Jonah from the Bible, this is what you find. If you do a Google search of children's books about Jonah, this is what you're going to find. Nine times out of ten, it's a picture of a guy being eaten by a fish. And typically, Jonah is reduced to the simple moral teachings of obey God or you might get swallowed by a big fish, you know, which is nice when you're six or seven. But there's so much more to the story of Jonah, and this is certainly not the main point. In fact, the big fish only gets two sentences. Two sentences in the entire book. Now, it's only four chapters, but still, where, why do we focus everything on this? And then, thinking a little bit more outside this room, as we are a witness to other people, and they hear about this story of this guy surviving in the belly of a fish for three days, and then being spat out, and going to preach or whatever, that's kind of hard to believe for some people. 
Now, I'm not here to challenge the historicity of Jonah or try to, you know, is it a fairy tale kind of a story? Is it a historical kind of story? I'm not here for that. But when we reduce it to Jonah and the big fish, we really miss a lot. And we really miss the revelation of God's character. And we really miss God's mission to all people, not just the Jewish people, but to all people. So, audience participation again. Where else does Jonah himself make an appearance in the Bible? Not being mentioned by Jesus, okay? You might be drawn to that one where, where Jesus references the story of Jonah. Anyone know where else does Jonah show up in Scripture? Who's our biblical scholars out here? Yeah. In a list. He is in... Not actually a list, um, but he is mentioned in Second Kings. And what's interesting, as you study, um, you know, the prophets and kind of the timeline of their history with the kings, both Jonah and Amos were contemporaries under the king of Jeroboam II. What's really interesting about this is that you start to learn that Jonah was actually a really lousy prophet and not a very great guy. Um, just it's, it's hard to kind of peel back the layers, but if you compare these two verses here, in 2 Kings, we get this very short description of Jonah telling Jeroboam II, like, hey, God's going to bless you. He's going to expand your territory. Okay? Now, Jeroboam II... Also not a great dude. Bad king, did not follow the Lord. If you jump over to Amos, in his writings, in his um, prophecies from the Lord to, to Jeroboam, he says, no, you are not going to expand your territories. In fact, you have done wrong in the sight of God. And what's interesting is you see actually these two conflicting messages both from people who claim to be prophets of the living God. Now, I think there's a reason for all that, and I think we can start to see that Jonah himself is flawed and sometimes self-serving, and so sometimes his word of the Lord may not always be that accurate. But as you dive deep into Jonah, and we're, we're really not going to spend a lot of time because, you know, we don't have the time. We could do... Um, you know, one chapter a week and, and get a lot done. But I just want to do a, a, an overview here. But you, you start to see that Jonah is actually a very brilliantly told story. And it's very unique among the, the books of the prophets because most of the prophetic books are filled with prophetic poetry. But this is a story about a prophet. And there's really no, except for one line, prophetic words uttered. It's a story about a prophet for the people of Israel. And it's also full of satire and the unexpected. Bad guys become good. Prophets hate people who repent. It's very interesting when you start to see um, the story and how it unfolds. Even in the first few verses, we see that Jonah is an unordinary book of prophecy, because again, 
Um, it starts off with, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. And then it begins a story. Unlike, again, if you go to a book like Amos, where it's just, it's prophecy. This, this is the word of the Lord. So what I want to do is take each chapter quickly, and I want to look at four aspects of Jonah and what we can learn from him. The first is that he is the prodigal prophet. Okay? So we, um, if you're not familiar with the story, you're going to get kind of the Reader's Digest version. You know, you can watch VeggieTales later, or you can just go read it when you get home. But we see that he's been given this directive, right, by the Lord to go and preach to the city of Nineveh. Now let's pause there for just a second. Nineveh was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire, one of the superpowers of that time. And they were a, they, they're known historically, outside of Scripture as well, as a very brutal people. The way they would execute people, um, how they handled, you know, taking over other countries, how they handled, you know, treason within their own. They were brutal. They were a brutal and I think you could say objectively wicked people. Um, and we know also that the city of Nineveh is huge. Later on, it's going to tell us that it took three days to walk through and in and around the city. It's a big city. So we don't know exactly the reason right away, but we know that Jonah runs. He goes as far away as possible. And I brought up a little map here. So you can see Joppa is where Jonah is. Nineveh, 500 miles that way. And Tarshish, which is where he tries to flee, is like literally at the end of their known world. In fact, I love this on VeggieTales. There's the sign, if you remember the map, and it's like on the side of the map is Tarshish. It's like shows how far away it is. So he flees to the farthest city possible. And he doesn't get far, right? The Lord sends a storm, and Jonah is actually found sleeping during this storm. The sailors are freaking out. They're calling on their gods. They're trying to figure out. They're casting lots. Whose fault is this? Who made what God angry, and how can we get it to stop? And finally, Jonah says, it's my fault. It's my fault, you know. I was told by the God who created the land and the sea to do this thing. I didn't. And they're like, okay, well, what should we do? And he says, throw me overboard, and everything will calm down. And at first they try not to, but it's still getting really bad, so they decide to, to throw him overboard. Now, I don't know what's going on in Jonah's mind. I don't know, like, if he is trying to save these people or if he's honestly just trying to die. Not exactly sure at this point. This might be Jonah's easy out in some ways. Throw me overboard. I'll die in the sea. You guys will be fine. I don't have to go to Nineveh. May, I don't know if that's running through his head, but I think it's plausible. You know, at the very least, in some ways, he's still running. So, they throw him overboard, and he gets, this is where all of our attention typically goes, he gets swallowed up by this big fish, 
He's in the stomach of this fish for three days and three nights. That brings us to chapter 2. In chapter 2, we find the praying prophet. Now, audience participation time. I'll give you a moment, if you, if you have your Bibles open, to Jonah chapter 2. I hope you do. I'll give you a moment to kind of scan through that prayer. And I want to know, what do you notice about Jonah's prayer that's interesting? Perhaps missing, if I gave you a little hint. What do you notice about Jonah's prayer here? Any thoughts? Just shout it out. Because I can't, if you raise your hand, I probably can't see you. What's interesting about his prayer? Is there anything missing? Is someone saying it? Repentance. Have you noticed that? He never says, forgive me, Lord. In fact, I kind of noticed this. I went through... And 20 times he says, I, me, or my. Very self-centered prayer. And again, I think our natural tendency is to be like, oh, how nice. Jonah's praying. It's like, you bet he's praying. He's inside of a fish. Right? But what is he praying about? He's praying about himself. And how, like, look, he's almost patting himself on the back at the beginning. I called out of my distress to the Lord. And he answered me, yeah, because you ran away. There's no repentance. There's no thank you. There is at the end, he kind of turns it around and he does promise to fulfill what he said he would do. That's very nice. It's an interesting prayer. I would not put it in my top five of like, these are the prayers you should learn from and pray. I think there's a lesson to learn, and it's maybe don't focus on yourself so much, Jonah. So it's just interesting. Again, like, if we just look at it on the surface, oh, how nice, Jonah's praying. But look at what he's praying about. He's not praying for repentance. He still hasn't even repented yet. But in God's mercy, God has this fish, and I I don't know what your translation says, but mine says vomit. Again, I think there's a lot of satirical language in Jonah. He vomits him out onto the dry land. Okay, now it says the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. I love how that's thrown in there. Saying, arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I'm going to tell you. So, Jonah decides to go to Nineveh after all. And... He begins to walk this enormous city with a simple message. In Hebrew, it's five words. And in our versions, um, he says something to the effect of, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now, Scripture doesn't tell us anything else. I don't know if that was his whole sermon Or if he had some side points, maybe he had, like, I mean, I'm throwing in an alliteration at least. You know, you got the four Ps. There's no point A, B, C. There's no altar call. You know, there's no come forward as we stand and sing. It's in 40 days, the Lord's going to destroy this place. 
Again, maybe he said more, but not his best effort, perhaps. And it does say that he was to proclaim what the Lord told him to proclaim. Now, let me stop and say this. I think the Lord can do a lot with five words. I think the Lord can change people's hearts in one word. So it's not necessarily about that. I'm just trying to poke and prod at Jonah and his heart. So he walks around, and we assume he only made it a day before people start listening. In fact, the king listens, and hearts are turned, and he issues this fast. And yes, as Chris mentioned, even the animals fast. And hearts are changed. And the king says, who knows? God may turn and relent his anger so that we will not perish. And it says that God saw their deeds and he relented. And praise God for that. What's interesting is this is the second time that Jonah has inadvertently brought a group of unbelievers to the Lord. First, the sailors. The sailors start to see who God really is, and they start to call on him. It says in uh, chapter 1, verse 14, they called on the Lord, and they were earnestly praying to the Lord. And now this huge city of wicked people. And so... You kind of wonder, how's Jonah going to respond to this if we don't know the end of the story? You know, if we don't know the end of the story, you would think, wow, that's pretty, that's pretty amazing. 120,000 people. Now, I try not to track my own numbers too closely as a marker of success. I've had a few good sermons in my day. I've had maybe one or two times where someone has come forward and wanted to talk to me or maybe even wanted to give their life to Christ. I've had a few baptisms in my day, but I've never converted an entire city before. Those are big league numbers. That makes Billy Graham look like he's playing Little League right there. And so you'd think that Jonah would be so excited and so humbled to be used in such a powerful way by God. And that's why I wanted... a verse 1 of chapter 4 to be read where Jonah sees what the Lord has done and it says but it greatly displeased Jonah and he became angry what? how? why? this is what Jonah was supposed to do as a prophet to declare the word of the Lord so that hearts might be changed, so that people might align themselves with the will of God. And it works in a huge way. But he's angry about it. So he prays a second prayer. And this is where we get to the prejudiced or prideful prophet. So, but to Jonah, this seemed very wrong that these people would turn And he became angry. And he prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. 
I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love. Look at him. He's quoting Moses. A God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry? So he says, This is what I told you would happen, God. I knew that if I proclaimed your word, these people would repent. I told you so. It's kind of a weird I told you so. And instead of just striking them down or whatever, he, he asked them a question, a good question. Do you have a good reason to be angry? You see, Jonah hated the Ninevites. He did. He didn't want them to be saved. That's why he tried to run away, because he knew that God would be merciful. He knew that God's word could change hearts. And perhaps this is why he kept his proclamation so short. This is why afterwards, in chapter 4, he goes up on a hill, gets out his lawn chair, gets a nice big bucket of popcorn to watch God hopefully do what he did to Sodom and Gomorrah, to Nineveh. And it doesn't happen. And God even, there's this other weird thing that happens. God has this tree or vine kind of grow and give him shade. And he's like, oh, that's nice. And then a worm, God appoints this worm uh, to eat this vine. And then it goes away. And then he's mad again. And he asks God to kill him again. And the Lord asks him again, do you really have a good reason to be angry? So, last audience participation. What do you think is interesting about the ending or the, con- the conclusion of Jonah? Anything stand out to you when you, look, when you compare it to other um, books in Scripture or other stories? What's interesting about the ending? If you read just the last couple verses. Any, anything come to mind? Just shout it out. How about there is no conclusion? Have you noticed that? There's really no conclusion. It just ends with the Lord kind of chastising Jonah, saying, Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, a great city in which there are more than 120,000 people who do not know the difference between their right hand and their left, as well as many animals? Don't forget about the animals, Jonah. End of book. Just like that. It's interesting. It almost leaves us hanging like there's some questions we need to ask. So my hope is that as we read Jonah, we allow it to challenge our own prejudices, our own disobedience, our own hesitancy to see God's mercy extended to others. Because I think what Jonah is really about is that it's supposed to be a mirror. It was a mirror held up to the people of Israel to challenge their own prejudice. Now we know eventually Nineveh comes down and they wipe out the or the Assyrians wipe out the northern kingdom. Eventually the Babylonians come and they wipe out the northern kingdom. But I think there's two questions we can really ask ourselves from Jonah. And the first is are you okay with God loving your enemies? 
Because that's kind of what he's saying to Jonah right there at the end. These are your enemies. Are you okay that I love them? That I showed them mercy? Why would I not? We get so angry at others. We vilify people. We make them our enemies. We run for op- from opportunities to extend the grace and love and forgiveness of God. And maybe sometimes we want bad things to happen to our enemies. We want their destruction rather than their redemption. I didn't plan this at all, but I found it compelling to be talking about this on September 11th, a day that we remember a horrible attack on our nation that killed about 3,000 people. And I was, I mean, I was old enough to remember that. In the aftermath, there was a time where we seemed almost very united, like we had gone through this tragedy together, and so we're going to be friendly. But it didn't take long for that to grow into this hatred of Muslim people, this hatred of people who come from the Middle East. And I saw it everywhere, even in our churches. Things that did not reflect the heart of God, but more the heart of Jonah. So the story of Jonah, it holds up a mirror for us to gaze into. Remind us that we are capable of that kind of prejudice and hatred. And though we may see it in our world today, we are not to engage in that as people of God. Rather, we are to reflect the heart of God who is great in compassion and mercy, slow to anger, great in loving kindness. And the second question is, aren't you glad that God does love his enemies? Because Paul reminds us in Romans 5 that God demonstrated his own love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And since we've now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life. Let's pray. Lord, I pray now that you would hold up uh, this mirror and allow us to